Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Marshak. Today we have a very special transmission. As I stated before, more solo episodes with yours truly will be coming out this year as something extra for Patreon subscribers and devoted fans of the podcast. Prior solo shows, which previously were publicly available, will remain behind a paywall for some time to give value to those of you joining up to fund this show. If you've just signed up to receive exclusive broadcasts and you're hearing this for the first time, I want to thank you for becoming a funder. Your support is what makes this show possible and what allows me to continue doing this. If you're hearing this later on public release, then I hope this serves as a valuable introduction to the kind of content you gain access to when you become a funder of the Agora Politics podcast. Regardless of how you reach this audio recording, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen as we endeavor to improve our philosophical understanding together. All right, let's get into it. In Western philosophy, we have yet to move beyond the life and death of Socrates. Though his time has long since passed, we would be remiss to think there's nothing to be gained or to be remembered by returning to accounts of this legendary figure. Socrates, the gadfly of Athens, a man held in such high esteem that he is revered even to this day, despite writing nothing down to be recorded for posterity, and otherwise lacking in the accoutrements of worldly and material success. Not a conqueror of lands and peoples, but of minds, and maybe even souls. Despite the persistence of his spirit, he was put to death by the city he sought to serve, mocked and derided in his own time by men and women less noble than himself. In my recent conversation with Michael Millerman on the political philosopher Leo Strauss, we talked of the irresolvable tension between the philosopher and the city, between knowledge and custom, between truth and piety. Strauss, too, believed in returning to the great works, to begin anew our confrontation with the most fundamental questions. Questions surrounding the interplay among these forces are eternal and remain relevant for philosophers in all places and all times. If the aim of this show is to move beyond mere entertainment or a frivolous notion of education, then in seeking a way forward for political theory, we ought to individually revisit these old questions the forms in which answers of various kinds were bequeathed to us, and gradually begin to live out our presuppositions in practice. Philosophy is, after all, most fundamentally about doing, not just thinking. So here, presented for you now, is an excerpt of Socrates' parting words upon receiving the sentence of death from his Athenian jurors, followed by a brief analysis of this particular segment of Plato's Apology, which I wrote for a senior seminar on the Four Trials. The cited translation is from Four Texts on Socrates by Thomas G. and Grace Starry West. Allow me to set the scene. The jury votes on Socrates' innocence or guilt, and a majority finds him guilty as charged. Melitus then makes a speech proposing the death penalty, and Socrates is tasked with offering a counterproposal. This is Socrates. 
Many things contribute to my not being indignant, men of Athens, at what has happened, that you voted to convict me. And one of them is that what has happened was not unexpected by me. But I wonder much more at the number of the votes on each side. For I at least did not suppose it would be by so little, but by much. But as it is, as is likely, if only 30 of the votes had fallen differently, I would have been acquitted. So as it seems to me, I have even now been acquitted as far as Meltus is concerned. And not only have I been acquitted, but it is clear to everyone that if Anidas and Lycon had not come forward to accuse me, he would have had to pay a fine of a thousand drachmae, since he would have not gotten a fifth of the votes. At any rate, the man proposes death as my dessert. Well then, what counterproposal shall I make to you, men of Athens? Or is it not clear that it should be whatever I am worthy of? What then? What am I worthy to suffer or to pay because I did not keep quiet during my life and did not care for the things that the many do, money-making and household management and generalships and popular oratory and the other offices and conspiracies and factions that come to be in the city? Since I held that I myself was really too decent to survive if I went on into these things. I did not go into matters where, if I did go, I was going to be of no benefit either to you or to myself. Instead, I went to each of you privately to perform, to perform the greatest benefaction, as I affirm, and I attempted to persuade each of you not to care for any of his own things until he cares for himself, how he will be the best and most prudent possible, nor to care for the things of the city until he cares for the city itself, and so to care for the other things in the same way. What then am I worthy to suffer, being such as this? Something good, men of Athens, at least if you give me what I deserve according to my worth and truth. And besides, a good of a sort that would be fitting for me. What then is fitting for a poor man, a benefactor, who needs to have leisure to exhort you? There is nothing more fitting, men of Athens, than for such a man to be given his meals in the Pritaneum. Much more so than if any of you has won a victory at Olympia with a horse, or two, or four-horse chariot. For he makes you seem to be happy, while I make you be so. And he is not in need of sustenance, while I am in need of it. So if I must propose what I am worthy of in accordance with the just, I propose this, to be giving my meals at the Pratanium. Perhaps then, when I say this, I seem to you to speak in nearly the same way as when I spoke about lament and supplication quite stubbornly. It is not like that, men of Athens, but rather like this. I am convinced that I do not do injustice to any human being voluntarily, but I am not persuading you of this, for we have conversed with each other a short time, since, as I suppose, if you had a law like other human beings, not to judge anyone in a matter of death in one day alone, but over many, you would be persuaded. But as it is, it is not easy in a short time to do away with great slanders. Remember the first part of his the first part of Socrates' speech is dedicated to undoing decades of slanders that have propagated around Athens before this trial came to be. I, being convinced indeed that I do not do injustice to anyone, am far from doing injustice to myself. 
and from saying against myself that I myself am worthy of something bad, and from proposing this sort of thing as my desert. What would I fear? That I might suffer what Melitus proposes for me, about which I say that I do not know whether it is good or bad? Or instead of this, should I choose something from among the things that I know well are bad and propose that? Should it be prison? And why should I live in jail, enslaved to the authority that is regularly established there? The eleven. Or money, and imprisonment until I pay? But for me, this is the same as what I was saying just now, for I have no money to pay. Well, should I propose exile then? For perhaps you would grant me this as my desert. I would certainly be possessed by much love of soul, men of Athens, if I were so unreasonable that I were not able to reason that you, who are my fellow citizens, were not able to bear my ways of spending time in my speeches, but that instead they have become quite grave and hateful to you, so that you are now seeking to be released from them. Will others, then, bear them easily? Far from it, men of Athens. Noble indeed would life be for me, a human being of my age, to go into exile and to live, exchanging one city for another, always being driven out. For I know well that wherever I go, the young will listen to me when I speak, just as they do here. And if I drive them away, they themselves will drive me out by persuading their elders. But if I do not drive them away, their fathers and families will drive me out because of these same ones. Perhaps then, someone might say, by being silent and keeping quiet, Socrates, won't you be able to live in exile for us? It is hardest of all to persuade some of you about this. For if I say that this is to disobey the God, and that because of this it is impossible to keep quiet, you will not be persuaded by me, on the ground that I am being ironic. And on the other hand, if I say that this even happens to be a very great good for human being, to make speeches every day about virtue and the other things about which you hear me conversing and examining both myself and others, and that the unexamined life is not worth living for a human being, you will be persuaded by me still less when I say these things. This is the way it is, as I affirm, men, but to persuade you is not easy. And at the same time, I am not accustomed to deem myself worthy of anything bad. For if I had money, I would have proposed as much money as I could pay, for that would not harm me. But as it is, I do not have any, unless, of course, you wish me to propose as much money as I am able to pay. Perhaps I would be able to pay you, say, a minna of silver. So I propose that much. But Plato here, men of Athens, and Crito, and Gertobulus, and Apollo Dorus, bid me to propose thirty minae, and they will stand as guarantors. So I propose that much, and they will be trustworthy guarantors of the money for you. Voting between the penalties proposed by the accuser and the accused, the jury condemns Socrates to death. He has time to make some further remarks before he is taken away to prison to await execution. Socrates. For the sake of a little time, men of Athens, you will get a name and be charged with the responsibility by those wishing to revile the city for having killed Socrates, a wise man. For those wishing to reproach you will assert that I am wise, even if I am not. At any rate, if you had waited a short time, this would have come about for you of its own accord. For you see that my age is already far advanced in life and close to death. I say this not to all of you, but to those who voted to condemn me to death. 
I also say the following to these same ones. Perhaps you suppose, men of Athens, that I have been convicted because I was at a loss for the sort of speeches that would have persuaded you, if I had supposed that I should do and say anything at all to escape the penalty. Far from it. Rather, I have been convicted because I was at a loss, not, however, for speeches, but for daring and shamelessness and willingness to say the sorts of things to you that you would have been most pleased to hear, me wailing and lamenting and doing and saying many other things unworthy of me, as I affirm, such things as you have been accustomed to hear from others. But neither did I then suppose that I should do anything unsuitable to a free man because of the danger, nor do I now regret that I made my defense speech like this. I much prefer to die having made my defense speech in this way than to live in that way. For neither in a court case nor in war should I or anyone else devise a way to escape death by doing anything at all. In battles, it often becomes clear that one might escape death, at least by letting go of his arms and turning around to supplicate his pursuers. And there are many other devices to escape death in each of the dangers, if one dares to do and say anything at all. But I suspect it is not hard, men, to escape death, but it is much harder to escape villainy. For it runs faster than death. And now, since I am slow and old, am caught by the slower, while my accusers, since they are clever and sharp, are caught by the faster, by evil. And now I go away, condemned by you to pay the penalty of death, while they have been convicted by the truth of wretchedness and injustice. And I abide by my penalty, and so do they. Perhaps these things even had to be so, and I suppose that there is due measure in them. After this, I desire to deliver oracles to you. O oh, you who voted to condemn me. For in fact, I am now where human beings particularly deliver oracles, when they are about to die. I affirm you men who condemn me to death, that vengeance will come upon you right after my death, and much harsher by Zeus, than the sort you give me by killing me. For you have now done this deed, supposing that you will be released from giving an account of your life, but it will turn out to be much the opposite for you, as I affirm. There will be more who will refute you, whom I have now been holding back. You did not perceive them. And they will be harsher, inasmuch as they are younger, and you will be more indignant. For if you suppose that by killing human beings you will prevent someone from reproaching you for not living correctly, you do not think nobly. For that kind of release is not at all possible or noble. Rather, the kind that is both noblest and easiest is not to restrain others, but to equip oneself to be the best possible. So having divined these things for you who voted against me, I am released. But with those who voted for me, I would be pleased to converse on behalf of this affair which has happened, while the officials are occupied and I do not yet go to the place where, when I do go, I must die. Please stay with me, men. For this much time, nothing prevents our telling tales to one another as long as it is possible. For I am willing to display to you, as to friends, whatever this thing means which has occurred to me just now. For to me, judges, for by calling you judges I would address you correctly, something wondrous has happened. For my customary divination from the Diamonian was always very frequent in all former time opposing me even in quite small matters, if I were about to do something incorrectly. Now you yourself see what has occurred to me. These very things which someone might suppose to be, and are believed to be, extreme evils, 
but the sign of the god did not oppose me when I left my house this morning, nor when I came here to the law court, nor anywhere in the speech when I was about to say anything, although in other speeches it has often stopped me in the middle while I was speaking. But as it is, it has nowhere opposed me either in any deed or speech concerning this action. What then do I take to be the cause of this? I will tell you. Probably what has occurred to me has turned out to be good, and there is no way that those of us take it correctly who suppose that being dead is bad. In my view, a great proof of this has happened. For there is no way that the accustomed sign would not have opposed me unless I were about to do something good. Let us also think in the following way how great a hope there is that it is good. Now being dead is either of two things, for either it is like being nothing, and the dead man has no perception of anything, or else, in accordance with the things that are said, it happens to be a sort of change in migration of the soul from one place here to another place. And if, in fact, there is no perception, but it is like a sleep in which the sleeper has no dream at all, death would be a wondrous gain. For I suppose that if someone had to select that night in which he slept so soundly that he did not even dream and had to compare the other nights and days of his own life with that night, and then had to say on consideration how many days and nights in his own life he has lived better and more pleasantly than that night, then I suppose that the great king himself, that is the king of Persia, not to mention some private man, would discover that they are easy to count in comparison with the other days and nights. So if death is something like this, I at least say it is a gain, for all time appears in this way indeed to be nothing more than one night. On the other hand, if death is like a journey from here to another place, and if the things that are said to be are true, that in fact all the dead are there, then what greater good could there be than this, judges? For if one who arrives in Hades, released from those here who claim to be judges, will find those who are judges in truth, the very ones who are said to give judgment there, Minos, and Radamanthus, and Achaeus, and Triptolemus, and those of other demigods who turned out to be just in their own lives. Would this journey be a paltry one? Or again, to associate Orpheus and Musaeus and Hesiod and Homer? How much would any of you give? For I am willing to die many times if these things are true, since especially for myself, spending time there would be wondrous. Whenever I happen to meet Palamedes and Telamonian Ajax, or anyone else of the ancients who died because of an unjust judgment, I would compare my own experiences with theirs, as I suppose it would not be unpleasant. And certainly the greatest thing is that I would pass my time examining and searching out among those there, just as I do those here who among them is wise, and who supposes he is, but is not? How much would one give judges to examine him who led the great army against Troy, or Odysseus, or Sisyphus, or the thousand others whom one might mention, both men and women? To converse and associate with them and to examine them there would be inconceivable happiness. Certainly, those there surely do not kill on this account. For those there are happier than those here, not only in other things, but also in that they are immortal henceforth for the rest of time, at least if the things that are said are in fact true. But you two judges should be of good hope towards death, and should think this one thing to be true, that there is nothing bad for a good man, whether living or dead, 
that the gods are not without care for his troubles, nor have my present troubles arisen of their own accord. But it is clear to me that it is now better, after all, for me to be dead and to have been released from troubles. This is also why the sign did not turn me away anywhere, and I at least am not at all angry at those who voted to condemn me and at my accusers. Yet, it was not with this thought in mind that they voted to condemn me and accuse me. Rather, they supposed they would harm me. For this, they are worthy of blame. This much, however, I beg of them. When my sons grow up, punish them, men, and pain them in the very same way I pained you, if they seem to you to care for money or anything else before virtue. And if they are reputed to be something when they are nothing, reproach them just as I did you. Tell them that they do not care for the things they should, and that they suppose they are something when they are worth nothing. And if you do these things, we will have been treated justly by you, both I myself and my sons. But now it is time to go away, I to die and you to live. Which of us goes to a better thing is unclear to everyone, except the God. Analysis The Death Speech of Socrates by Alex Marshak Socrates, in his final statements to the Athenian jurors and crowd gathered before his impending execution, reveals himself to be playing a game much longer than the span of his trial, lifespan, or even those of his successors. When faced with the verdict of guilty and the sentence of death, Socrates remains defiant towards his accusers and steadfast in his conviction of the righteousness of his activities. Where previously in the Apology, Socrates gives the impression of a man averse or neutral to the prospect of death. At this stage, he turns the tables on his condemnation by insisting on the goodness of the fate that is soon to befall him, and the wretched vengeance no doubt awaiting his executioners. Moreover, he claims that possibly the most splendid of fates may be in the wings for himself, as he soon may have the pleasure of congressing with fabled heroes demigods and poets so revered in the Greek pantheon upon his descent into Hades. These final proclamations do nothing to change what is coming for Socrates, and clearly are not meant for this purpose. I contend instead that the last remarks made by Socrates at the tail end of his trial demonstrate Socrates' keen understanding of the reverberations his speech can make through the generations and his undying commitment to teaching the way of the examined life to others. Though his light was soon to be extinguished, Socrates' immortal words remain with us because, in his last stand, he took care to ensure that they might be worth hearing. Upon receiving his death sentence, we get a Socrates who remains unapologetic as ever, consistent with his attitude throughout the trial, reflecting on the defense speech he has given thus far and his unwillingness to do anything beneath himself in hopes of altering the course of the trial by appeals to emotion. He says, Neither did I suppose that I should do anything unsuitable to a free man because of the danger, nor do I now regret that I made the defense speech like this. I much prefer to die by having made my defense speech in this way than to live in that way. Crucially, he points out here that death would be not merely tolerable, but actually preferable to a life of actions unbecoming to a free man, marred by cowing to his accusers. This mirrors a sentiment expressed earlier in the defense speech, where he insists that given the hypothetical, he would rather die than discontinue philosophizing as he does. Note that in his counterproposal, whether in earnest or in jest, 
Socrates affirmed that his actions are for the benefit of the polis and its citizens, and that a fitting punishment would be for him to dine at the Prytaneum, implying that it would be for the benefit of the city for him to remain unperturbed. Importantly now, that death is all but certain, the focus for Socrates has moved away from the question of his past activities to the conduct of his dispensed speech itself. Whereas before he would rather die than stop philosophizing, now he would rather die than to have made his defense speech any differently. This shift in focus is a small tell that Socrates is aware that more than just his own fate is on the line in this trial, but that the spectacle might be made meaningful for the people of Athens, even or perhaps especially in his absence. Next, he moves into an observation of the nature of his sentence. Death being an inevitability for all people, he says, is not something to be feared, but rather the only opportunity to avoid a fate truly dishonorable, the life of villainy. For, quote, it is not hard, men, to escape death, but it is much harder to escape villainy, for it runs faster than death. As district attorney turned supervillain Harvey Dent put it in Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Having received the judgment of his peers, Socrates turns his judgment on them. Quote, and now I go away condemned by you to pay the penalty of death. Will they have been convicted by the truth of wretchedness and injustice? And I abide by my penalty, and so do they. There is an appeal here to a higher truth and justice than the truth that can be discerned by the counsel's trial and the justice their judgment dispenses. Socrates then delivers the oracle that a divine vengeance will strike at his persecutors with a punishment harsher than the execution they have inflicted. To point towards a defined transcendent justice, which is above and supreme to the procedures and courts of man, is to set himself apart from the shame and even guilt that this trial and condemnation might induce. On the contrary, here he is shaming them for having been so unjust in the proceeding and verdict of this trial, sowing seeds of doubt that their victory could be a lasting and righteous one. In fact, he asserts their goal of ridding Athens of gadflies is also a fool's errand. Quote, if I suppose that by killing human beings you will prevent someone from reproaching you for not living correctly, you do not think nobly, if you suppose. Just as none can escape death, Socrates' persecutors cannot, through murder, escape the ignobility of their deeds, or the reproach of noble noticers. As for the supposed penalty, that too he refutes to concede to his accusers, saying, probably what has occurred to me has turned out to be good, and there is no way that those of us take it correctly who suppose that it's dead, but being dead is bad. In keeping with his alignment, with the will of the gods and the permissions of his diamond, Socrates leads us to the core of the table flip, that his death itself, even at the hands of these villainous accusers and in an unjust trial, might ultimately be for the good. Thus his accusers have now been robbed of their claim to justice, robbed of their protection from pestering philosophers, and even robbed of the satisfaction in ending Socrates. Still, he will take his dismantlement further. Socrates gives a picture of what, is imp what his impending death might entail. He says death can result in one of two possibilities. Either it is like being nothing, or it happens to be a sort of change in migration of the soul from here to another place. In the first case, he speculates that what awaits is a kind of eternal unconscious slumber. Should this be so, death that is coming for him, and eventually all people, is but a relief from the tumults and tangles of human existence. Remember, death is preferable to villainy or cowardice, acts one might be tempted towards 
in the course of a drawn-out life. To enter into eternal sleep is therefore to be rid of the pressurous pains and temptations plaguing the virtuous on their quest to carry out a life worth living. In the second case, there is a journey to Hades, where a Greek would commune with their ancestors and fellows. Socrates reminds them that if he is to go to Hades, he would arrive to meet Minos and Radamanthus, Orpheus and Homer. In this scenario, death would mean but that he would join the ranks of the demigods, heroes, and poets of ancient Greece. If that be the fate of Socrates, then it is not so much a damnation than a passage into the most legendary club imaginable. In fact, Socrates even says he would look forward to the opportunity to examine them. In short, given these two possibilities for what might come after death, a fall into restful nothingness or an eternity with the greats, Socrates finds nothing to fear for himself or others. The utter repudiation of death as a penalty for himself does not quite tie up all the loose ends. There is still the question of what is to happen for the people that will go on living after Socrates is gone. About the valence of his own death he is now certain. It is clear to me that it is now better, after all, for me to be dead and to have been released from troubles. However, he leaves behind a wife and sons in his stead. For them he wishes only that they be punished and reproached for unvirtuous behavior and self-important presuppositions in the way Socrates would have wanted. Even in the matter of his living legacy, his progeny, Socrates cares only that justice be adhered to and that they receive their just deserts. This concluding passage captures the essence of the purpose of his final part of the speech, to ensure a record of how one should act when inevitably future confrontations and tensions of the type examined in this trial arise in the lives of succeeding generations. Thus we see that Socrates' final portion of the speech, having understood that he is resigned to his fate, is not for himself, but for the viewers. It is in this sense a meta-speech, because it is, only, it is not only concerns the subject of the defense speech itself, but also seeks to transcend the limited scope of the trial, indeed the limited scope of his life. In sum, Socrates' last section of the Apology presents a series of arguments not for his own ego and self-aggrandizement, but for the city and the people to have so that a meaning may persist beyond the limitations of his mortal coil. He could have lamented his fate, shriveled before the prospect of death and remorsefully pleaded with his persecutors, but instead chose to remain adherent to his conviction to a higher calling, a higher truth, a higher justice than that which could be found among his peers. To act in any way differently or subversive to his way of being before would be to undermine his own life project and forever compromise the validity of the principles he held claim on. Instead, Socrates chose to lead the exit of his trial as he had in life, for it to be an example before others of a different way of being. A being that did not give way to fickle attitudes and fashions, nor corrupt and unjust procedures and indictments, but clung to a self-understanding of justice, of virtue, arrived at through the examined life. Denied are his detractors and accusers of any respite in their self-righteousness, admonition from Socrates, or self-satisfaction in his destruction. I make the claim, given all the evidence presented here, that the final parts of his speech constitute an argument that transcends the questions and subject of the trial, which is why Socrates ultimately arrives to us as the victor in this ordeal. It is precisely because of the boldness, steadfastness, and manner with which he defended his way of being that his legacy on trial is recorded, preserved, and still notable for us to this very day. Thank you for listening.